Buying in a partnerships comes in all forms. Siblings, family trust, business partners, divorced couples, parents and child. It's not just your loving other. And when an outsider comes in, like a new spouse, or even if one of the partners die, complications can come in which can add new dimensions to the original contract. Today we talk about what we need to look for when buying in a partnership. Welcome to Real Estate Right, where we talk to top experts on how to buy, sell, rent and invest right. Your hosts are Grant Kennedy and Sue Langeter. Christine Walsh is a well-respected member of the Conveyancing Fraternity. Her career spans more than 28 years in the legal profession, including 18 years in her own business. She is the director of Walsh Conveyancing in Somerville and prides herself on providing all of her clients with a supportive, informed, warm and fuzzy conveyancing experience when people buy, sell and transfer real estate within the state of Victoria. Welcome, Chris. Yay. Thank you. Thanks for coming in. Now, do you prefer Chris or Christine? Uh, Chris. Yeah. Cool. Perfect. Fine. This week, we will do something different. We will split the episode into two parts, one coming out today and one tomorrow. So you'll be able to digest the legal side of this week's topic better. Today, we will get into the basic terms and scenarios of buying in a partnership. And tomorrow, we will look into more in-depth accounts of what can happen. All right. So you've obviously got a love of helping people with real estate transactions. How did you get into conveyancing? Sure. Um, Well, I got into conveyancing when I um, was about 18 years of age. All I ever wanted to do when I finished school was join the police force. I set the exams when I was 18 and they said, come back when you're 25, go and get some life experience. So I started working for a law firm in Brighton. and um, as a receptionist and just progressed from there. Um, Once I uh, was married and wanted to have a family, I um, started a conveyancing business when I was six weeks pregnant with my first. As you do. As you do. When you have no time coming up. When you have no time coming up, six weeks pregnant with my first child, who's about to turn 18. And, um, yeah, ran from there. So it's been very sort of family-friendly and gives me a bit of flexibility to do things with my kids as well as be there for my clients 24-7. Can you, I suppose, start with explaining to us what the difference is between a solicitor and a conveyancer for people that have no idea? Absolutely. So a solicitor goes to university and studies various aspects of law, including conveyancing. Um, They are experienced in as I say, various aspects of law, we just do conveyancing. Conveyances, all we do is property transfers, people buying and selling. So we are specialists in people buying and selling real estate. That's all we do. Um, And we are able to offer that service to anyone within the state of Victoria. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So if there's any complications with the transfer of law, it's better to choose a solicitor, is that right? No, or, or, not necessarily. Yeah. Okay. Um, as conveyances, we have uh, a lot of experience in handling mm. everyday disputes that come up. Pardon me. And um, if there is an issue that becomes too complex, then we can actually, we do have supporting solicitors. Mm-hmm. Um, through. Uh, I'm a member of the Australian Institute of Conveyances, the Victorian Division, and we have a solicitor that we can refer to, um, call in, give us general advice or hand over our file to um, a solicitor if it becomes far more complex and outside of the scope of work that we're entitled to do as conveyances. Okay. Mm. So yeah, you're in safe hands. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Okay, so what's the legal term of the type of owners you can be when you buy a property in a partnership? 
Sure thing. So there's actually a couple of different types. Um, there's tenants in common in equal shares, mm-hmm. tenants in common in unequal shares, and then there's joint proprietors. Now, tenants in common in equal shares um, basically says that each of the property owners has a 50% share in the property. Mm-hmm. Um, and they can basically, the difference with tenants in common and joint proprietors is as a tenant in common, you can give away your 50% share of that property under your will if you die. So it doesn't automatically go to the surviving proprietor. So as a tenant in common in equal shares, um, your share is bequeathed by will if you die, um, but it also gives... um, has its own implications in that the surviving proprietor doesn't necessarily have control over who comes onto the title once the original person person passes. Um, Tenants in common in unequal shares sort of speaks for itself. You can own like a 70-30 share, 60-40 share, um, and each owner, depending on the share of the property that they own, um, has that extent of liability or entitlement. Um, and the shares are actually uh, registered on the transfer of land, which is actually registered in the titles office. Mm-hmm. So when the new title issues after the transaction settled, it actually clearly states who you are and what share of the property you own. Um, and that is often tied into the financial contribution you make towards the settlement. Um, and also, um, or it can be used in an instance where they're um, buying property for tax purposes. Um, But again, it's it's one of those sort of things that because as a tenant in common, you only have a certain percentage of share, it's bequeathed by will. So um, if you die, that share that you own in that property doesn't go to the surviving proprietor. It is actually dispersed in accordance with the will. So as a joint proprietor, each owner has a 50-50 share. Yeah. Uh, most commonly used for um, married couples, um, business owners that um, are providing equal funding into a purchase. Um, The substantial difference being that the tenants in common and joint proprietors, as a joint proprietor, if one of the parties die, the other surviving proprietor automatically acquires, via lodgement of a survivorship application, that deceased share. So the will doesn't come into play. So as a tenant in common, you've got to actually, once that deceased party um, dies, you've got to actually obtain a grant of probate to deal with that deceased share of the property before it gets transferred under their will. Okay. So it, it can be a little bit complex um, mm. but as I said, there's, there's a whole lot of reasons why people buy tenants in common um, and joint proprietors a lot of it is uh, legal protection tax yeah. implications equity contributions to purchasing yeah um, but for the most part we see even young couples um, unmarried couples or that are planning to get married we still um, often register them as tenants in common in equal shares yeah. um, you can actually change the manner of holding. Um, by making an application to the titles office at a later stage. But it's just the legal protection um, and ownership and how they're registered on titles. Yeah. I actually have no idea (laughs) what I've bought under with my wife. There you go. Well, Well, a title search can fix that. Yeah. Um, And it depends on um, did you buy the property as a married couple? Yes. So in most instances you would have bought as a joint proprietor. Um, Unless often, you know, families that are 
combining, you know, that might have combined families that, you know, each couple's been through a marriage breakup and then yeah. they've formed a new partnership. Yeah. Um, often different levels of finance come into purchases and, mm-hmm. you know, there's kids to worry about. There's a whole lot of different reasons why people would buy as tenants in common because they have to worry about um, how their kids are going to benefit from their estate in the event that mm. they pass. So a newly formed relationship where there's kids and um, previous commitments from previous relationships would probably more go down the line of buying property as tenants in common mm. so that they can actually bequeath their share to their children from a previous relationship. Whereas a husband and wife, you're buying a property, um, there's just no question about who you'd want the um, your share to go to if you pass. Yep. Mm. Yep. Fair enough. Yeah. There you go. Uh, so, what are the pros and cons of a tenants in common? So, the pros and cons of tenants in common. The pros being it clearly states um, your financial contribution, your mm. status of um, or percentage of ownership. Mm-hmm. Um, the downside, as I said, is that the surviving proprietor doesn't necessarily have a say in who's going to become the registered proprietor if the other yeah. partner dies. Yeah. Um, and it, it really can be a bit of a, a process when a party dies as a tenant in common to obtain probate and go through a lengthy process um, and it's a costly process as well, getting that grant of probate to be authorised to deal with that deceased share of that part of the property. So as a joint proprietor, you don't need to go through those processes of getting a grant of probate. It's an application by surviving proprietor, which is lodged in the titles office, that can be done quite quickly now because we do everything online, everything's yeah. electronic, so yeah. much quicker than it used to be. But the grant of probate still takes time to get before you can deal with the deceased share as a tenant in yeah. common. Does it cost much to change? Uh, the application fee, I think, is only around about 100 to $150 to okay. actually change the manner of holding. Yeah. Um, and depending on whether or not you've got a mortgage, you've actually just got to make sure that the title's available and the bank's okay for you to change the manner of holding. So okay. we've got to suss it out with the bank when we First. make any changes yeah. and they've got an interest in the property. Okay. So essentially if they've got two separate mortgages on the same house because they're doing things differently, like... Yeah, yeah. it happens all it the happens. time. Yeah. It happens um, all the time. And then they decide, well, let's, you know, we love each other so much that we'll just put it all together <laughs> and become equal. Uh, then, as you said, you go talk to the banks first, make sure everyone's happy in the equal department and then go to the titles office and go equal there. Come and see us and then we can make sure that um, as part of your refinance, we actually do the transfer at the same time so that you yeah. can actually get all your finances sorted yeah. and then we get that all replicated on a transfer of land and lodge it with the titles office yeah. so that it's all so kosher no, and very transparent. So you, there's no stamp duty implications on any of that? There's no stamp duty implications on a transfer between husband and wife on their principal place of residence. Yeah. But if it's an investment property, mm-hmm. um, it needs to be assessed by State Revenue Office for stamp duty. Okay. Oh, there you go. Yeah, it's tricky. Mm. So that's, that's a con. 
Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's a con. So be very clear from the beginning, um, yeah. if you can be, and that's um, part of our um, process is actually informing clients what the differences are between tenants in common, in equal shares, in unequal shares, and as a joint proprietor, mm. understanding what that means mm. for each individual family. And they don't necessarily have to make the decision on the spot. I encourage my clients to actually go away and talk to mm. their, their partner or their husband mm. or their sister or their brother yeah. or whoever they're buying with and just be really clear that they understand the difference between tenants in common and joint proprietors mm. so that when we do prepare the transfer of land, they are registered on title as how they want to be registered on title mm. and they know that in the event of the death of one of the proprietors, um, how that share of the that ownership of the property is going to be dealt with under their estate. Mm. So. Yes. Important. Very important. important to know. Definitely. Interesting. So joint proprietors is the same as joint tenants. That's the same yes. concept. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's just a play with words. Okay. So what's... Yeah. I mean, they're, I know they're almost exact opposites in a way, but what are, are, there, what are the pros and cons then of the joint tenant side of things? So as a joint tenant or joint proprietor... Um, a pro would definitely be that um, in the event you each own an equal share and it's very transparent on the re- on the registered title that you are joint proprietors so that if, if one of those parties pass, um, then bang, a survivorship application is lodged in the title's office, it's transferred straight across to the surviving proprietor. So it's a quick, quick process. Um, it's much cheaper than going to um, the grant of probate mm through the processes of acquiring um, all the assets of the estate, which a solicitor needs to do. That's not something that we can do. We can actually lodge a survivorship application online for a client very quickly. So it's a much cheaper process. Let's say um, it was a, you know, a second marriage, you know, two people coming together and they do have kids, but then they did actually purchase the property as in the joint um, proprietor type scenario and one passes, the kids then don't have any access to that in that arrangement, do they? That would just go to the surviving partner? If they've purchased the property as joint proprietors, it automatically goes to the surviving proprietor. Yep, so in that situation the kids have no access to that at all. Well, they can if they contest the will. Okay, so that's Um, where I was trying to wondering if we could get to that. Yeah, Absolutely. So there are definitely complications. um, And in that instance, I would generally advise a client if you're a a newly blended family. Mm -hmm. um, And it's very common these days. Everybody's, you know, two, three times kids, you know, everybody... um, yeah, has a right to happiness. So if they're coming together, um, I would generally recommend that they purchase a property as tenants in common. Um, whether it's equal shares or unequal shares, that's for them to determine. Sometimes um, uh, someone brings more financial equity to a purchase than another. Some people are starting again after a relationship breakup. Um, so that tenants in common really needs to reflect um how they want to own the property based on their financial contributions 
for that yeah at the beginning Mm. um because further down the track if someone does pass um if it's not accurately reflected and someone feels like they're being diddled out of a dollar or two you can bet your bottom dollar that there's going to be a a contest to the will and a bun fight starts and the solicitors come in and take over and it gets very messy yeah Mm. i've seen it Oh, I'm sure. Mm. I'm sure there's been yeah. plenty of... And money turns people crazy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, it does. It does. So, as an example, what, what happens if, say, two brothers buy a house, both married, and one divorces, even though the wife's names aren't on the title? What, what would happen in that sort of situation? It's an interesting situation. Um, two brothers bought the house... Um, their wives not being on title. Now, something to note here also is their wives may be registered on the mortgages as an yeah. interested party or a guarantor aspect okay. of loans. So there may still be some legal implication for the wives to be dealt with under the mortgage. Yeah. Um, in terms of the brothers separating, largely depends on um, the family law. Yeah side of things which I generally couldn't assist with. Yeah. It's outside the scope of the work that I can do. Yeah. Um, if if it's straightforward and the parties agree to, um, for example, transfer ownership of the property from the brother who's got the dispute with his wife to yeah. the other brother, yeah. then that can be done yeah. um, and all needs to be documented. Mm. Um, and especially if there's... Um, a family law dispute in place, I would actually say get an agreement written up by your solicitor, then come back to me and I'll effect the transfer for you. Um, But largely that type of um, division of property is going to be dealt with by the solicitor as part of the family law process. So it is quite complicated Mm. um, and you can bet that there's going to be a fair bit of um, value... um, discrepancy between um, warring husband and wife mm. and so there's going to be more than one solicitor involved oh, yeah. um, and that's certainly a situation where we would just suggest that they go get independent advice yes. and um, make sure that they're both independently represented and yeah. hopefully yeah. they can come to some agreement yeah. and move forward. Amicably. <laughs> Amicably, correct. <laughs> okay, so in terms of a partnership, does it matter... If you're married, business partners, de facto, sibling, parent, child, are the rules still essentially the same? Um, I guess really it is based on your individual circumstances, as I mentioned, your financial contributions, knowing the difference between tenants in common and joint proprietors. Um, It's an integral part of the decision-making process as to how you actually purchase the property. Essentially, uh, the rules are the same. However, if you're buying in a trust, self-managed super fund, um, pursuant to a company constitution, um, these structures often have a set of rules in which you have to abide by to be able to acquire property. Um, It also sets out um, certain capacities um, for members and directors and how shareholdings come into play. But in terms of individuals owning property, um, you've just got to understand the differences between 
the joint tenants and yeah. tenants in common. As I said, when you go to a corporate structure, mm. things change slightly yeah. because you have the constitutions and the self-managed mm. super funds, the trust deeds and a whole lot of other things that you need to take into consideration, which we yeah. do yeah. see a lot of that these days. A lot of people are buying property with their self-managed super funds, even yeah. though lending's getting harder, yeah. much harder in that respect. Yeah. Um, but it's certainly something that we do and we, we see a lot of. So mm. it's... The rules are essentially the same, but mm. understanding the different types of property ownership yeah. is important. Yeah. As you said, like people, individuals are different, much different to the, yeah, the corporates. But, you know, like Grant's next question, you know, we'll probably yeah. add to, <laughs> yeah, add to well, that as well. Yeah, sure. well, let's delve a little bit deeper into it. Um, so what are the legal differences between buying as a person versus a company and or a trust. Yeah, sure. Okay, so as a person, um, you're individually liable for the performance of the obligations under a contract. Mm. So you sign the contract, um, irrespective of what the terms are to that contract, you're in, you are solely responsible for um, the obligations and performance under that contract. Um, the name of the individual is registered on title in the capacity as either a tenant in common um, or a joint proprietor or a sole proprietor um, and that individual uh, is also personally liable for any debts that are incurred in relation to the property. So um, the mortgage, any rates or taxes that are um, incurred on the property. Um, and as a company or trust or a corporate entity, um, a company um, or a trustee of a trust is a separate legal entity of its own. So yeah. there's different rules around that. There's um, company constitutions, um, there's trust deeds uh, that come into place to determine the capacity in which you've got to purchase, um, who has authority to sign on behalf of the company or the trustee of a trust. Um, and director's guarantees are required to be signed by the directors of those companies to guarantee the performance. Um, of the company. Mm. So if the company is unable to perform their obligations under the contract, then the directors of those companies become personally liable for the companies to to honour the company's obligations under the contract. Yeah. Yeah. So even though people think that they've got a certain element of protection buying in a company, yeah. uh, by signing a director's guarantee of that company structure, you are saying, well, if the company can't fulfil their obligations under the contract, I'm going to put my hand up as the person behind the company and be personally liable. Yeah. So you've still got the responsibilities yeah. as a director of a company yeah. to um, honour the obligations under the contract. So. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, there's lots of little companies out there where just one director or, you know, husband mm. and wife director and that's it. Absolutely. You know, you're essentially... Um, and nobody else is working for the company as such. Yeah, it's not like the company is owned by anybody else. It's, yeah. No, you, that's right. You know I mean? And there's a whole lot of reasons why people set up companies and a lot of it's for asset protection and it, yeah. um, and that's all part of legal and financial advice that they would be getting from um, their lawyers or yeah. their accountants and financial advisors. So having, ha- having structures and... Um, 
and understanding your financial position also is a really good reason for clients to seek advice from their accountants or financial advisors before buying property, especially if it's not going to be their principal place of residence, if it's going to be for investment purposes, they actually seek advice as to what's the best entity in which to buy property because they may be able to use money from their self-managed super fund or they may be drawing money out of a a business that they own or... They just have a pot of gold in their backyard. That they're we all actually I'd love one. Yeah. Um, they have a pot of gold that they can actually, you know, yeah. um, put money into a property. So, okay. yeah. So, if a partnership falls apart or you choose to sell the property, how do the funds get divided in each situation? So, if a partnership falls apart, um, generally uh, with a partnership, most financial advisors, accountants, legal practitioners will always. Um, recommend to anyone contemplating going into a partnership that you actually enter into a partnership agreement, um, which essentially sets out all the terms of agreement and identifies the relationship and obligations of the party. Mm. Um, In the event that the property is sold, the structure of the ownership, um, which is confirmed on the transfer of land and registered on the title, determines how the funds are to be dispersed at settlement and the partnership will also... partnership agreement will also determine how the funds are to be dispersed to the property owners. So if the property is sold, in most instances, um, in a commercial capacity, Mm -hmm. um, the solicitor's trust account will generally hold the funds Mm -hmm. um, that's left over after any mortgages repaid and any other debts owing and secured by that property, um, and then disperse it according with uh, winding up the company structure. Um, In terms of an individual partnership. Um, Similar kind of situation, if it's a family law dispute, um, often the funds go off to a solicitor's trust account after the mortgage has been repaid, conveyance of solicitor costs are paid and all the outgoings and the title is cleared. Whatever's left goes into a solicitor's trust account and the family lawyers bang it out between their selves um, to represent their clients as best as possible and then disperse funds in accordance with the final court orders. Yeah. So it, it can get messy. Yeah. Um, so then the court actually actions that. Well, the court... Someone's getting... The court would... Or they'll oversee it or whatever. Yeah. yeah so, so in a family law instance where solicitors are engaged to act for parties as part of a property settlement... Um, Generally, there'll be court orders in place which determine how funds are to be dispersed. And that'll be based on the pool of assets that the relationship has and who Mm -hmm. gets what. And Mm -hmm. um, it's generally at the same time they're sorting out um, custody and Mm -hmm. all very complicated family law stuff, which we don't have a whole lot to do with. But it... um, we certainly have been involved with uh, sales of property where individuals have got family lawyers and we actually do the conveyancing, but we actually liaise directly with um, both family lawyers, yeah. uh, especially if agreement has been reached and it's fairly amicable. Mm-hmm. We can actually disperse funds if everyone's happy at that point in time yeah. of settlement. Yeah. So it's uh, if everyone's happy. If everyone's happy. Yeah. Um, but, you know, a lot of people aren't happy and it yeah. makes it so much worse and so much more expensive for everybody. Oh, I can imagine. So that's all we've got time for today. We will have more from Chris Walsh from Walsh Conveyancing tomorrow to find out what can happen when two parties who were once on the same page are no longer and a sale needs to take place. 
and tomorrow you'll also find out about Chris's special offer to Real Estate Right listeners. Download Real Estate Right so you don't miss it. Real Estate Right is a real copyright production hosted by Sue Langader and Grant Kennedy. We would like to thank Podbean for hosting our podcast, Audio Stock for sound effects and Premium Beat for our theme music. If you love this podcast and want to help us, we'd be ever so thankful if you could please subscribe, rate and review us on your favourite podcast service. We welcome any of our listeners to email us if they have any questions they would like answered in a future episode. So please send us an email to sue at realestateright.com.au. Thanks for listening to Real Estate Right. Right.